Say hi to everybody, because everybody pretty much said hi to everybody. Because, uh, honestly, I want to do some picture time so I can show you guys some pictures. So, uh, so real quick, what we'll do is on the announcements, uh, if you got a flyer, hopefully you got a flyer on there. Uh, one thing that I just wanted to highlight just really quickly um, is just the first bullet point. Uh, we're going to start up like a men's breakfast. We're going to try and do it like... Uh, one Saturday a month, men's breakfast, and we're going to do it um, starting on the 9th, October 9th, 7.30 a.m. I uh, haven't decided exactly where we're going to meet yet. I'm not sure where it's going to work out. But we're going to do, so not a huge commitment, but one Saturday a month, just for the men, try and get together, and um, it'll be good for us to get together and talk about some things and uh, build up the men in the church. So... Even if somebody doesn't go to church here, they're also invited to come along as well. So it's not even just for us, but invite some other people too. Um, what I wanted to do is I wanted to show you guys uh, some pictures of our awesome, awesome baby boy, the big blessing. Um, you know, first I want to say that uh, I just want to say thank you just to everybody, just for uh, even, you know, people that aren't here either, but just... Thank you to everyone that just has prayed for us and kept us in their thoughts and their prayers because, um, you know, it wasn't really good for a while there, um, and there was a lot of complications, and uh, this wasn't good for a period of time. But now, thankfully, it is good, and he's awesome, and mom is awesome, and uh, sleep is gone, you know, it's it's just a new part in life, and so it's really cool. So I just wanted to show you some pictures um, just in case you didn't get a chance to uh, see him, I also have presents for you, which I'll pass out because we don't like pass out real cigars, but we could do we could do gum ones. So that's fun. And actually, the gum is pretty good, so you can chew on those. So, here's a couple of pictures. So that picture right there, so let me tell you. So this picture right here is finally, after being in labor uh, for a long time with a lot of difficulty, this is the picture uh, rejoicing after Julie had her C-section and it, it, it went uh, well and successfully. And so that was like right after at the foot of her bed. She's like, don't get me in that picture. But we had uh, all the girls rejoicing, kind of celebrating. Um, what do we got in the next picture? I don't remember. Oh, so this is when, this is, here he is. So he just, just popped out. And um, we had him downstairs in the little uh, IC unit for uh, the babies. And so they just had to check, uh, check his heart rate and just make sure everything was good. So he was down there for a couple of days. It was kind of difficult, you know, because he's born and they got to take him away. But thankfully he wasn't too far, only seven floors away. So you just take an elevator down there to see him. What was on the... So there he's again. <laughs> Newborn again. Uh, he's a little guy, six pounds, three ounces, a little long, 21 inches. So he's growing good. <laughs> What's the next one? Oh, that one we can't really see, huh? That's okay. We can go to the next one. There he is right there, a little more awake, with the eyes open a little bit, with his little hat on. Um, he still had some, some wires just to check his heart rate, but he's doing much, much better there. Just a big difference from that picture, just from the first one, right? I mean, um, what's the next one? There he is, right there again, getting some rest. 
There he is right there. So now, yeah, so now we're home. Now we're home, and I was kind of right in his face and uh, took a picture. He's got his little mittens on. Eyes are open. And then that one right there, I think that's the last one. That was, uh, he was relaxed on the couch, and he didn't appreciate the flash going off in his face. But, uh, but he's doing good. So Mommy and Jaren are doing really good, and so... Your prayers and your thoughts are invaluable. Uh, the word I keep telling everybody is sustaining. So, really, really appreciate it. Um, it's a pretty exciting time in life right now. So, that's very cool. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. Very cool. And so, uh, hopefully, maybe next week. So, mommy and uh, and Jaren will be here. Um, <laughs> we'll see how much rest they get. So, we'll see. All right, so let's start up. We start a little bit late, but that's okay. We'll get into Acts here. Uh, we're going to be in Acts 24. On the next slide, there you go. You got your chapter. So Acts 24 is where we're going to be. We've been working through the book of Acts. The cool thing is that we're coming up on our one-year anniversary. And so that is pretty special and pretty exciting. We had a bunch of baptisms, uh, some fun times, and been meeting here, and so... It's been very cool and very, very exciting. Uh, so we pick up in Acts 24. So last time I was with you guys and we had a chance uh, to be in Acts. Last week we had Dan, uh, who did a great job. And um, he's a blessing, right, as a young guy. Like, that's a solid young guy. He's, he's going to do well in life. Um, but last time I was here with you was on 9-11. And so on 9-11, uh, we were in Acts 23... And it happened to be a place where um, the religious leaders were actually scheming together to get Paul. They actually took a vow and an oath and they said, you know what, we're not going to eat, we're going to take this vow, and we're not going to rest until we kill him. And so it really you know, kind of was an appropriate passage for 9-11 because that was really the attitude of the people that set the whole thing into motion as well. And so we talked about that a little bit and that's kind of what we talked about last time we were together. And this morning, we're going to pick up where that has just happened, right? So they just conspired. They took this vow. They took this oath. But what happened is, I'll kind of cheat and give you guys a little bit of the background, is his, actually his nephew found out about it. He overheard them discussing about it. So the nephew ran over to the prisoners that were guarding Paul, and they said, hey, listen, um, they're actually conspiring against him. So you might want to move him from this place. And so the officers decided to believe him, and they moved him from that place. And since when they moved him from that place, they're bringing him to, now he's actually going to sit before like um, a Roman judge. Everything up until this point, he's been sitting in front of people or like religious authorities. He never actually got in front of the law. So it's like, it'd be like, so we're at Calvary Chapel. So it'd be like if we had an argument that was big enough and it got violent enough, uh, it would be like, okay, first you sat with like, you know, the church and tried to kind of work things out. If that didn't work out, then they got together with maybe like a region of pastors and tried to work it out. And if it got really violent, really ugly, then unfortunately the police would have to get involved and they'd have to go to court. And so that's kind of like a similar situation here. So now he's really in court with the law and with Rome. And so now it's really serious business and we're going to see what happens to Paul. He just happens to be in this season in his life right now where it's just like he's constantly defending himself and honestly, it's not really looking that promising for him. Um, 
as he continues to do more of the right things, it seems like it's just getting more difficult for the guy. Sometimes, and the Christian walk is just kind of like that. He's had some other times where it's like he was kind of on a high, where it's just if an apron that he had and it touched someone, it would just heal somebody. It was just in a total another season in his life. But we happen to pick up, you know, to where he's just defending himself constantly. But God is using him in like tremendous ways, and um, we're going to pick up today to see what he's doing with him at this point in time. So you got a picture right now. He's right here by himself. Everybody's against him, and he's sitting before the Roman authorities. He's like in court for real now. He's his own lawyer. So the question is, uh, you know, what is going to happen? And one interesting dynamic I want you to think about as we get into this and read it is the truth really comes out. It becomes a pattern and a theme when Paul is really got his back against the wall and people are coming on him and coming at him and to attack him. He doesn't get immediately defensive and just trying to go after them. He always kind of keeps in his mind the perspective of truth and how important truth is and the facts of what's really going on, which is like a pretty good discipline, I think, especially when somebody's coming after you. It's so easy to be defensive. And so when he speaks the truth, the tables change. Last time when the religious authorities were questioning him and trying to catch him in like lies and things, he actually turned the tables to when he left, they were fighting amongst themselves. And so now when he's going to sit before the Roman ruling people, he's going to speak the truth again, and he kind of flips the tables again. We'll kind of see how he does and what happens. Because these guys are really trying to get away with telling half-truths, little white lies, you know, and it just doesn't work out. Um, one show that Julie likes to watch a lot, she's really into like watching the court shows, the court TV shows. So Judge Judy... Uh, Pretty much any of them. She just likes to watch them. And I, I, the funny part she likes is she just likes, she goes, Jared, it's just so stupid what they do. You know, and so she enjoys watching the part where they try and tell like these half-truths or give most of the story and hoping that they can kind of win their case. And it just, it never works out for them and that's kind of the entertainment value. And then plus the judge is kind of funny, you know. One of uh, the running lines, I think it's for Judge Judy, is uh, they don't keep me here because I'm good looking. They keep me here because I'm smart. You know, so... It's a funny show, and it's funny to see that dynamic of half lies and half truths, but we're going to see it in a real way today. And Ben Franklin had a quote about truth and lies. He said, half a truth is often a great lie. Right, sometimes you try to minimize it and be like, well, I kind of told them most of the truth. But I don't know. Benjamin Franklin said, half a truth is often a great lie. kind of gets you in more trouble than what you think. So let's take a look at it. So Acts 24, hopefully you had enough time to turn there. Let's take a look. He's sitting before the Roman government, finally the law. Let's see what happens. So chapter 24 says, Five days later, the high priest, Ananias, he was the guy that's like head of the ruling council, went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. So the leader of what we call like the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, he comes with a couple other guys and their lawyer. Because that's their side. Paul is going to be coming by himself. That's all he's got. So in verse 2, it says, When Paul was called in, Tertullus, right, the lawyer for the bad guys, right, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. Felix is like the judge. He's the judge that's there. you got Tertullus, the lawyer for, you know, quote-unquote, the bad guys, right? And then you have Paul by himself. So they're sitting before the judge. So here's how this lawyer 
introduces, right? We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you. And your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. So he's just sucking up right from the beginning. Just a brown noser and uh, really trying to flatter the guy. So verse 4, but in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. So here's the charges. Here's what he says. He says, we have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So he seized them. By examining him, you yourself will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. Okay, so here's the charges right up here too as well, in case you missed what we were reading, right? So the big thing is, one, they're saying that he is a troublemaker causing riots. Two, he's a ringleader. Ringleader, he's kind of the organizer of the Nazarene sect. And three, he's going to be uh, responsible for trying to desecrate the temple. Now, they might not seem that serious, but back then, these are actually pretty serious crimes. Because number one, troublemakers causing riots. That's a big deal in Rome. That's a heavy thing. It has huge political overtones. Because you've got to figure in this day and age, this is Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Like that was their thing, Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And so if you're trying to cause riots and trying to bring trouble into that peace, you're going to suffer some consequences. So they're trying to paint Paul as this guy, this rebel, uh, this sort of cultic leader guy that wants to cause problems. Number two, ringleader of a Nazarene sect. So again, might not seem really that significant. But believe it or not, in Rome, at this point in time, you could not have a new religion. Couldn't do it. It was against the law. So you couldn't have a new religion, and they're trying to paint this guy as this troublemaker, bring uh, problems to Rome, and a guy who's trying to start a new religion. So they're just really loading it on him. And then the third one, they're trying to say that he's trying to desecrate the temple, really destroy it. And it's another heavy charge because, believe it or not, Rome gave the Jews the temple where they worship. The temple that meant so much to them, Rome actually gave it to them. One of the King Herods, there's a lot of Herods, one of the King Herods gave it as a gift to the Jews. as kind of like a peace offering between the two and say, hey, let's get along together. So these are some pretty heavy charges that they're bringing against them. And just painting him as this rebel, bad guy, cult leader. And so, we're going to see now how Paul responds. So we pick up uh, in verse 9. And so it says, The Jews join in the accusation. So the, some of the Jews that were there, they're like, yeah, yeah, you know, he's right. Asserting that those things were true. So in verse 10, it says, When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied. So here's, how is he going to reply to this? How would you reply to that? It says, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation. So I gladly make my defense. So flattery, that's about as flattering as Paul's going to get. So in verse 11, you can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. 
and have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. All right, so that's kind of how he addresses them. So we'll look real quick. So how did he address these charges, right? Because the first charge is a troublemaker, he's a ringleader, desecrate the temple. So how does he react? So Paul's response, well, his response to him being a troublemaker in this riot started was that, listen, I wasn't even around that long. I was only there for 12 days. How much of a problem could I really do? And the people that were there, you know, that time, none of them are here right now accusing me. It's just you guys. So the charges on that are, you know, how serious could it have been if nobody is here from when I was there? Kind of hard to prove his rioting. So that's how he attacks this sort of troublemaker rioter thing. So how does he attack or kind of counterattack this thing that he's trying to make up a new religion? How is he going to deal with that? Well, it says that uh, he stated he believed in the same God and the same religion that they do. Even in the resurrection, which some of them also believe. Only he believes as a follower of the way. So he's saying, listen, I'm not trying to like invent some new religion. It's not new. These people that have me on trial, it's what they believe. It's coming from their same Bible. It's from the books that are in there. Uh, I also believe in the resurrection, which even half of them also do. So he's like, you know what? He's like, honestly, I'm on trial here uh, because I'm a part of, quote-unquote, the way, right? We've seen that, like, reference through the book of Acts. If you're a Christian, you're kind of known as part of the way. It's kind of a cool term. I thought maybe we should get some t-shirts and, like, put the way in there. CC Nagy, like, the way in the back, put a picture of Jaron on there. You know? <laughs> you don't need the picture. <laughs> but, you know, we just put the way on there. But, um... So that's kind of how he counterattacks that. He says, it's not new. Right? So he's trying to turn the tables and trying to be truthful here. And so the third way, right, trying to desecrate the temple, he addresses that and he says, listen, I always came out ceremonially clean. I did all I was supposed to do. I came with the right people. Um, it's no charge there. You can't say that I was trying to destroy anything. So he pretty much goes right after those and really turns the table. And if we go to verse 17, let's pick up and kind of see how he expands a little bit on what he just said. It says, After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this, right? That's what we said before. So he's not trying to desecrate it. He was always doing good there. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have nothing against me. If they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. So very, very interesting and you could easily, easily miss it. He starts off being the one on trial, right? So the charges were brought. Tertullus, the lawyer, brought the charges. Paul kind of counterattacks counter them. And then how does he leave it? It's very interesting. He says, I'm on trial today because of the resurrection of the dead, and that's why I'm on trial. He turns the table to where the truth of the whole situation really comes to the forefront. He's saying, listen, I'm not a troublemaker. I never did anything to the temple. I'm not bringing, you know, a new religion. Actually, somebody's having fun. Actually, 
I'm on trial because I believe in this resurrection, this rising from the dead. That's why I'm on trial now. And in fact, half the people, half of the people that are trying to like convict me and do me in, they believe the same thing. So if I'm on trial because of what I believe as far as people rise from the dead or not, like that's not a good reason to be on trial here. So he like kind of turns the table. And so the question is, what is the judge, what is Felix going to say to that? You know, can I really prosecute this guy for believing that people rise from the dead? And if I can, then that means I also have to try and prosecute the other half of the people that are trying to bring the charges against them. These Pharisees. Or the Sadducees. So what does Felix do? Verse 22. It says, Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way. So that's very interesting. So somehow he knew about these guys of the way and the Christians and all that. Adjourned the proceedings. It says, When Lysus, the commander, comes, this other guy comes, then I'll decide your case. So basically he doesn't know what to do and he's going to wait till this other guy shows up and decide the case. Maybe he wants to ask the guy for advice. I don't know. Maybe he just wants to put it off procrastinate, I don't know. But he says he's going to wait for this other guy. It says, He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. So he had a little bit of help and flexibility, but really not much. He's basically under house arrest. So in verse 24, it says, Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla. Right? So that was the judge. So eventually his wife shows up, Drusilla, who was actually Jewish, which is pretty interesting. Maybe that's how he heard about the way. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, That's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. So for some reason, right, Felix was sort of intrigued by this guy Paul and his message, but then when it got a little bit too hairy, he's like, okay, get out of here. But then when he was feeling it again, he's like, okay, come back in, I want to talk about it. But then at the same time, he's trying to catch him in a bribe, which would also make his decision much, much easier, because then he could see that this guy is pretty much full of it if he's going to take a bribe. So he's trying to like manipulate the situation, kind of figure it out, and it's hard to tell if he's really genuinely honest about Christ or if he's not. So verse 27 kind of stinks for Paul. When two years had passed, well, thanks a lot. I'm sure Lysias showed up during that two-year period. Obviously, nothing happened. Because you can probably imagine, if they just keep Paul in prison, they don't have to hear about these yelling, screaming Jews complaining about what's going on. So it's just easier for the guys who are in charge. It says, when two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by this guy Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. So to kind of keep peace and not deal with it, not really care about doing the right moral thing as far as let's hear the case, let's have justice be served, it's ugh, as long as they're quiet, I'm happy, everybody else is happy, just keep this guy in prison. And so that's kind of how we leave it. So, an interesting story, again, about how Paul is dealing with constantly defending himself and doing the right thing, and it's just not really coming out to be that positive for him. But of course, my question, and probably your question, always is, right, on the next slide, you've seen this before, okay? see this all the time. You guys have seen this quite a bit, right? So what does this have to do with me, 
right? It's interesting that Paul, right, was on trial, that he suffered like this, that he had to deal with this, that he tried to do the right thing. He came up with some pretty logical arguments and uh, was pretty articulate about it. I mean, he was by himself. Uh, we can see the manipulations involved and that the truth is not really what matters to the judge. It's more of how can I keep peace? So how do you handle a situation like that and what do we do with it? So what does this have to do with me? What can we take away from it? Well, two thoughts. Two thoughts, two questions I think we could take away from this. That'll just help us out at least for this morning. Here's the first one. Here's the first one. Since we're in court and we're having all this legal talk and we're talking about all this stuff, this is what came uh, to my mind when I was thinking about this stuff. It says, if you were accused of being a follower of Christ, right, would there be enough evidence to convict you in a court of law? You may have heard it before, you may not have. But if you were accused of being a follower of Christ, would there be enough evidence to convict you in a court of law? Could you actually be proven guilty of being like, wow, overwhelming evidence. This person is definitely a follower of Christ. Or is it like kind of washy, you know, depending on who they bring in and who they question? What would they do? How would they do it? Well, here's what I was writing down and thinking about. Right? They'd have to be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt and without hesitation that you, in fact, are a Christian. That's what they would try and have to prove. What kind of evidence would they come forward with? Let's think about that, right? They would come forward with credit card statements, bank accounts, charitable giving, personal calendars, maybe your travel, cell phone logs, internet history. More importantly, they would try and produce a first-hand witness, right? They'd be checking all of this stuff, right? Would all of this stuff add up? Would it all kind of point to what we're trying to prove? That's at least something to think about, I think. Don't you think? As I was writing it down, I was like, ah, oh, you know, yeah. This... And convicting as well. But more importantly, they want to bring forward some witnesses. So maybe they see a paper trail, maybe they don't, but they also want to talk to some witnesses. What would these witnesses say? They would present people who knew you best. Friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, church members, spouses, what would they really say? Could you actually be convicted of it? So as the jury and judge would be looking for a number of witnesses, consistency in their testimonies, circumstantial evidence, right? They'd be looking for all of this to fit together and hopefully no red flags that point them in some other direction. Now, one thing to also think about is what if one of the witnesses, right, what if they're able to produce a false witness, right, an enemy? What if somehow they could produce it? Somebody just wants to do you in. Could they do it? Right, because this enemy would want to magnify and exaggerate any weakness and put everything under a magnifying glass. Would you hold up under that magnifying glass? And if somebody was probing for any weakness, any sort of inconsistency, how successful could they really be? Right? Would it be that hard to figure out? Now, pause there for a second, right? So, an interesting question, an interesting way to look at it. It is a possibility, it is a possibility that someone can have all of the outward signs and have, you know, uh, bank accounts that kind of look like sort of a giving, generous Christian and their calendars have taken them certain places and they spent time with their family and 
they've done all kinds of things. And the witnesses that they brought in were like, yeah, oh, he's a really nice person, you know, and uh, they helped me out with this, and they were there for me during that, and they did all these things. Um, maybe on the outside it looks really, really good. And maybe to a judge and to that courtroom and to that jury to say, seems pretty convicting, looks like absolutely a Christian. And when I was thinking about it, I was like, geez, you know, it would be radically different if the judge wasn't some person, if the judge was actually God. They didn't have all those banks, that same stuff. Now the only thing added to the, to the travel, to the calendar, to the bank accounts, to the witnesses, the thing that's added now is intention and motivation. Because a real judge can never see that. But God himself can see why he did all those things. And so now it's like, oh, jeez. You know, so I wrote that down. I was like, man, I was convicted right away because you could even be doing all of that stuff. And that's always what the Christian life is about. It's not just about doing that stuff and putting it out there. It's do I actually really love God? Is that relationship actually there? Or do I do it for just a bunch of other reasons? And that's really the heart of the issue. Because God wants to see the intentions and the right motivations behind what's going on and hopefully it's rooted in a love for Him. That's what it's got to be rooted in. And that's why we say church without religion because we want to focus on that relationship with God. It's that time they just get by yourself and just hang out with Him. You know, one thing about, you know, with Jaron, you know, and him being awake and we're trying to trade off and like get naps in between and I'm like and there's so much for me to do now it's just like it's just so much stuff I'm like oh my gosh Lord you know I, I think a lot of stuff you've put in my plate and on my lap I, I don't think I've overextended myself I've tried really careful not to but how am I going to still keep up with things and I'll tell you what one advantage that I've noticed so far uh, that I can share that plays into this relationship that we're talking about is you know when he's kind of a needy little guy right now and uh, we have to be like in the room and like close by and his favorite position you know is like right up here and just like hold him and kind of pat his back um, and, and so if it, you know mommy needs some rest you know I'll try and do that and cover as much as I can but that time where he's falling asleep and I'm rubbing him and you know we got the TV everything off has got to be like pretty quiet for him I don't know it's got to be pretty quiet and so it's just me and him just sitting there it's, just, it's an incredible time, again, for that, me, that relationship with me and God at that time. Just constantly praying for him, praying for Julie, praying for, you know, uh, my friends, the church. Like, what a valuable time that is. And I could be sitting there thinking, geez, I got to get this done, I got to get that done. I'm like, okay, come on, hurry, fall asleep. Like, what can I put him down? And then go handle this stuff. But what a great time for that and that's the part that really really matters right that's in the court of law if God is the judge that's the stuff that he sees and that's what's really important right that's the stuff that really matters that's really important so that's one thought if we're in a court of law could I actually be convicted and there's always room to work and people are in different places with their relationship with God um, but it's a question that's for somebody if you know they're in a real relationship with God and have it as a goal to be worshiping Him that's a question I think that should be entertained and thought about so here's the other thought the other thought I have was that are there any similarities between you and Felix any similarities between you and Felix remember Felix was the judge okay here's what I mean by my question 
if we take a look and go down, okay, on verse, in your Bible, verse 25. It says, as Paul, right, this is when Felix called him in. It says, as Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. And what he say? He said, that's enough for now. You may leave when I find it convenient. I'll send for you. So basically, when stuff got heavy and stuff got put into perspective, he's just like, I got afraid and I can't deal with this right now. You got to go when it's convenient for me. Maybe we'll talk about it. And that word afraid was very interesting because I went and looked back and looked it up and tried to look it up, you know, in, in the Greek and different Greek, uh, you know, dictionaries and stuff. And basically, the word means afraid, which is interesting. He wasn't offended by what he was saying. It wasn't like offensive to him. He was afraid or terrified or alarmed. Other synonyms that go along with that. So like he heard the stuff being talked about and he's just like terrified. It made him afraid, you know, alarmed. But he wasn't really offended. But it's like convicted is like a word that we would use. So he said, that's enough for me. When I find it convenient, I'll come back and talk to you. So it's interesting, when he hears about the truth, and when the truth speaks for Felix's case, oh boy, that's too much to overwhelm When I can deal with it, then, then come on back. Right? So interesting. One phrase that I wrote down, which I think might pop up, says, sometimes God works right away, or in a process with his son or daughter, but convenience and comfort is not the ultimate intention for the Christian lifestyle. I don't know how God was dealing with Felix. I don't know how this relationship was with him. Um, maybe God was working in stages and in a process with him, and this was part of the way it had to go. But certainly as we read through the Bible, we see that when God speaks to people, and then when there's a conviction in your heart, it is absolutely, absolutely in our best interest to react as soon as possible. Because we never know what might happen and what might be 10 minutes from now, an hour from now. Never, never know. And so, sometimes though, we have a little bit of time where God is working with us and it's a process. And we're trying to figure it out and He's trying to reveal Himself to us. But certainly, the second part of that statement, convenience and comfort, is not, 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 not the ultimate intention for the Christian life. <coughs> Not at all. And I think that can be very, very confusing. I put down like the Western mind, we're always going to struggle with convenient Christianity, quote unquote. In fact, we can sometimes equate God's blessing or God's favor on our lives with how much comfort and how convenient it will work out for us. Imagine if you tried to tell Paul that. Can you imagine, to, oh yeah, things are going really great, so God is definitely working. I don't know, what do you think about that one? Can you imagine the look on his face right there? And think about him and all, what he's going through right now? What's he going to say? Oh, God's not working you know, in my life right now, and I'm not exactly where God has me to be right now? It's very, very confusing. But as you read through the Bible, you see how God just brings people through different seasons of life. Or sometimes it's just kind of more challenging and the walls are caving in and that might even last for a little bit, a long time. You know? Or sometimes it might be like, you know, 
sometimes people at work, I see them and, hey, how's it going? Couldn't be better. I'm like, wow, really? That's awesome. And they say it like, you know, almost the whole school year. I'm like, what do you, I mean, couldn't be better. Like, what kind of life do you lead? So, that's just the way life goes sometimes. But convenient Christianity, I think, will always be a struggle for us because, I don't know, somehow it's kind of creeped in that it's really a big blessing when we're really comfortable and things are going smoothly that God is definitely in it. As if, as if, Satan could not use some comfort and some convenience to distract you and keep you at bay for a while. If I was Satan, I would certainly do that. I'd make things going pretty smoothly for somebody, and then they'll just sit back and they probably won't do anything. That's a tactic I would use. It's possible. But us as Christians, we have to have the discernment of like where God is and what He's doing and how He's involved. And so again, it comes back to the relationship. Like, how do we figure that out? With other Christian people, with um, wise people speaking into our lives, our relationship with Him and talking with Him. That's how we figure those things out. And to piggyback on that thought, why isn't it just about convenience and comfort? What's wrong with that? Well, I think one thing we already pointed out is that Satan could certainly use that tool. But another reason why it's not really the goal is because the model has already been set for us. If we look in Luke 9.23, it says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That was what Jesus Christ himself said. Not Paul, not Peter, not somebody else. That was what Jesus himself said. If anybody wants to follow me and take part in this whole Christianity thing and like be on my team, they have to deny, it has to be like regular for them to deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and come follow after me. That implies that there is going to be some suffering and some discomfort certainly along the way, and you will certainly be stretched. Right? Not a promise from problems, but a promise of peace in the middle of problems when they do come. That's the huge, huge difference. The peace that he offers. So let's close kind of with this. So I'll, I'll mention this thought and then uh, maybe we'll, uh, we'll do one more song and then we'll pray together. But closing thought. Um, God knows, number one, how committed we are with the whole court of law thing. God knows how committed we are. And how could we be convicted? A man like Paul is certainly a great model, right? You see this guy. He, he sure seems pretty steady and pretty solid. Um, the only thing I wish that we saw, and I wish God would have put it in the Bible, is just sort of the inner battles and inner turmoil and anguish that maybe he was going through when he was dealing with this stuff. Because uh, I, I think it probably is too easy to think that, ah, oh, he was just like a super guy and he just never dealt with that stuff. I just don't think it's the case. I kind of wish it was in there. But something to think about, right? What adjustments or realizations do you have to deal with? Anything from this morning, has it rung true? Right? Because maybe some things stuck out about being in a court of law and how similar you are to Felix. And if that is the case, you certainly don't want to let that go. And that's God himself trying to speak with you and trying to work some things out. So what we'll do is we'll close with this song and um, then we'll come back and we'll pray together.
Beautiful you are 